Onyong, and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, your co-host and moderator, and joining me thanks to some forged weekend passes is Lily. Why, hello. And Sean. Yes, hi. Good evening. <laughs> it sounded kind of angry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just excited. Well, this week we watched the pilot episode of the classic television show M.A.S.H., which originally aired on September 17th, 1972, on CBS. I dare say, and someone might debate me on this, I dare say that M.A.S.H. is the greatest show ever made. Thank you. Good night. That was a great episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it. Play us out. Well, no doubt, and everybody has heard of M.A.S.H. I, I think it was ranked 20th best show all time by TV Guide. Yes. And that's as of 2002. I'm afraid it would rank probably a little lower now because of Mad Men, Breaking Bad, The Wire, and all those shows that have come out since then. But still, undoubtedly a great show. Uh, an yeah. important show in television history. Yeah, a very groundbreaking show. Um, really, it is a, a show that ran 11 seasons. From 1972 to 1983, and had the biggest finale viewing of all time. The 108 million people viewing the, the finale of MASH in 1983. So, yeah. really uh, groundbreaking in many ways, dealing with uh, a topic of war and really kind of uh, making fun of the U.S. Army in many ways. Yeah, it's just satire. Yeah, very much so. But there are a lot of serious topics, and especially in a time when the United States was at war with, you know, in Vietnam. So it was very much on people's minds in 1972, and was really an allegory for the war in Vietnam, even though it took place in the, the Korean War. Yeah, it's very interesting that, you know, it made light of a lot of these horrible things. It's something that you don't see working too well, especially at that time, but... I can draw a parallel to the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt in this situation. Mash? Yeah. How yeah. So? Making light of serious topics. Oh, yes. That wasn't obvious. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it can be done. It, it, can, it can be done the wrong way, certainly, but it can also be done the right way. You know, if, if handled well, it will work. And obviously, uh, Mash was a ratings juggernaut, as Sean brought out. Really should mention too that Mash actually came from a book. Um, that was where it first started by a man named Richard Hooker. The book was called Mash, a novel about three army doctors, and I'm not sure when it was released. I'll look it up here. I think '68, 1968. Yeah, that sounds about right. It's, it really chronicles um, Richard Hooker's experiences in the Korean War. Now it's his pen name, of course. His real name was Doctor H. Richard Hornberger, who wrote this book. But he went under Richard Hooker for writing Mash. If you if you got to choose your own name. Hornberger would be my choice, yes. <laughs> I'd choose that over Hooker, but that's just me. Yeah, well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they're very similar. In that novel, if you've never read it or listened to it in an audiobook, um, is very, very good. And actually, this pilot episode we're going to be talking about is more based on the novel uh, and a story from the novel than anything else. It's probably the only episode I could think of, because I've seen all the episodes of MASH numerous times, because I do love the show. This is probably the only one of the only episodes that's directly based on a plot, a story plot from the movie or the the book in this case. The book, I mean, excuse me, the movie Mash also came out in 1970, 
very popular and had a, a great cast. Robert Altman was direct, the director of that, and it starred Donald Sutherland, Elliot Gould, um, Robert Duvall, and it starred a young Rene Auberjonois. Odo. Who played Odo <laughs> in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> and the villain from Police Academy 5, Assignment Miami Beach. That's correct. <laughs> So, very oh, very good movie. Yeah, and another interesting point about MASH that many people don't know about is that this is the first major studio film to use the F word in the dialogue of the of the movie. This hmm. really wasn't a thing before 1978, I'm assuming. Um, it's said one time, the F word. It's not friendship. <laughs> it's the bad F word. Frenemy? Frenemy. Frenemy. <laughs> And basically, it was a, an ad-lib line that they kept in the movie. So. Oh, really? So it yeah. wasn't even scripted? It wasn't even really scripted. Huh. And Robert Altman uh, really encouraged ad-libbing on the set of M.A.S.H., and it came out, and they kept it. So a film first for the movie M.A.S.H. <laughs> <laughs> and this TV show was actually created after a failed attempt to make a movie sequel based on the book sequel. Yeah. There's and... a lot of sequels to, to M.A.S.H., I think you're referring to Mash Goes to Maine. Yes, Mash Goes to Maine, which I can only yeah. imagine. <laughs> I, I heard that the books are very good, like the sequels. And there's a whole series of them after uh, Mash Goes to Maine, written by another author. And basically, Mash Goes to St. Louis, Mash Goes to San Francisco. It's a whole bunch of them. So. It's a whole road trip. The whole road trip. I'm not sure if the, the later series are any good, but I know Mash Goes to Maine is supposed to be pretty good. Huh. Well, for those that don't know, Mash is actually an acronym. And that stands for Massive Amounts of Sexual Harassment. That's correct. <laughs> no, no, Scott, that's not true. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm, uh, it should be. It's very relevant, but not true. Okay. MASH stands for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that makes more sense. And this was a concept that was an actual thing until up to 2006, believe it or not, in oh, well. Vietnam and Korea. Um, and, you know, the subsequent wars that happened after that in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was about to say, we weren't in Korea in 2006. No, no this, this is like, it, the first MASH unit was in Korea. It was after World War II, they came up with this concept of a... Because basically, you know, a soldier would get shot up or hurt, injured, and he would have no real way to get fast medical attention, uh, besides a little medic or something, an aid station. And they made these mobile army hospitals that could actually do major surgeries and kind of get the stabilized the, the victim before they could be, you know, sent for more extensive work or rehabilitation somewhere else. So, yeah, it was a, a thought up and it worked well for a long time for what it was. The show that we watched, though, MASH, it's, it's the story of the staff stationed at the 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And th this was located at Weijiangbu during the Korean War in 1950. Yes, and just a little background about the Korean War, and oh, you should be able to tell us about this since you just graduated high school. You should probably know mm. all about the Korean War. Probably, probably not though. Not not on your so square much. hat. Not yeah. so much, huh? Ah, I, I see. I never really liked American history as much as I liked world history. Oh, that's okay. Even yeah. though it is a part of world history, yes. I think I, Korea is in the world. Yes. Yeah. Last time I checked, it didn't uh, particularly interest me all that much. Yeah. Well, a little background on the Korean War. It was, like Scott said, starred uh, June 25th, 1950, and lasted three years, well over three years. Um, there was a ceasefire signed July 27th, 1953, 
really hasn't officially ended. It's uh, kind of still going on to this day. Um, it's just been in ceasefire mode for the past, you know, 60 years. Hmm. The Korean War came about because of events after World War II. Japan yep. was actually ruling Korea and before the end of World War II. And we know what happened there. And they no, were no longer ruling Korea after World War II. So it was kind of a, a schism, I guess you can say, that separated Korea into two separate governments. Um, one that was more pro-communist than the other one was, and North Korea and South Korea, and they were squabbling over borders for a long time, which kind of came to a head in June of 1950. And technically, Korean War was considered a, I'm doing air quotes right now, peacekeeping action, or yeah. police action, mm-hmm. um, by the United Nations. Um, so the United States was not directly at war with Korea. They were part of a UN task force, I guess you can say, which consisted of a bunch of countries, including South Korea was the major major participant, United States, United Kingdom, and a bunch of other countries, European countries, Canada, France, Philippines, Colombia, Ethiopia, Greece, supplied troops and supplies to the, the cause. And on the other side, we had North Korea, who was backed up by their communist friends from China, and the Soviet Union. And their goal was to push across what's known as now uh, the 38th parallel, which refers to the to the 30th parallel latitude line that cuts right across the middle of Korea. And to this day, that is where there is a DMZ uh, zone, basically. That is a no man's land that separates it's like a mile wide no man's zone. No now, is that land. where that show is set? Were they the paparazzi photos? Harvey yes, Levin. DMZ, correct. Okay. That's why I chased down the paparazzi. You go, uh, the celebrities go through the DMZ, they get from <laughs> North Korea to South Korea, and they, they chase them in trucks <laughs> and submachine guns. That's correct. Very good. You know your history, Scott. That's good. So that border <laughs> still exists today, and you have South Korea on one side and North Korea on the other side, and they stare at each other every day. But in 1950, <laughs> when the war was going on, this is the major, you know, they would push back and forth across this line, basically, the 38th parallel. And, you know, try to take real estate on either side. So this is where MASH is set, about 5-10 miles from the front lines. Interestingly, this is a show that lasted 11 years, 11 seasons, <laughs> yes. for a war that lasted 3 years. So there's a lot of discrepancies if you watch the whole series. Times seem to jump around a lot. One time, one day it's 1951, next day it's 1953, and it's back to 1951 again. So... Continuity is not really a, a strong point about MASH, unfortunately. <laughs> I think they have like eight Christmas episodes in the entire thing. <laughs> so keep that in mind when you're watching it. you got to take it with a little grain of salt or a large grain of salt <laughs> as you're watching this. It's kind of uh, ironic that the show was so popular, however, the Korean War was not, at least in America. <laughs> That's very true. Um, now you look at a time where it was, you know, Five years after the end of World War II, which is a major conflict. People were pretty much sick of war at this point. And it wasn't a very popular... It's actually known as the Forgotten War. By the time Vietnam came along, people were just pretty much sick of uh, war altogether. War stinks. War is not fun. Yes. War is heck. Official from the Hitting <laughs> Play podcast. War, war sucks. That's our official, that's <laughs> that's our our official stance. Sorry, war. folks. War is stinks. Thank you. And also the greatest hitter who ever lived served over there. Joe DiMaggio? Uh, no, the greatest hitter who ever lived. <laughs> Babe Ruth? Ted Williams. 
Oh, I forgot. Yes. Ted, Ted Williams, Williams went out there in his prime. A couple of seasons lost yep. to his service over there. And uh, it's pretty amazing. I, I always hear about, you know, what could have been, you know, if he actually was able to play those years. Yeah, that's true. Still and amassed it, an amazing career. Despite... Actually referenced in the novel also that Ted Williams was serving oh, really? in Korea. Yeah. All right, so before we get into this episode, obviously we've heard that Sean was an avid viewer of this show. I like MASH. <laughs> so I hear. Now, Lily, did you ever watch this show before this viewing? No, I have never watched MASH. Again, pretty common with all of the shows we tend to do on Hitting Play. Um, this is understandable, though. Yeah, this, this is about the time my mom was bored and this, this came out. Very pre-Lily. no i've never seen the show what about you scott well this was a show that aired in syndication obviously i'm you know i'm not that old but it aired on boston's tv 38 wsbk and much like our star trek episode that also ran on tv 38 this was one of those shows that if it was on tv you knew you were up late throwing up or something (laughs) Or, you know, I just remember being, like, bored at my grandparents' house when it was on. It was never a show that appealed to me. I think just as a young kid, just how drab the colors were. I mean, it's a very green and brown show. I was telling Sean, it was almost like the visual equivalent of lima beans to me. It's just very unappealing look to it. And it's just one of those shows. I, I can't even tell you if I actually sat down to watch a complete episode before this viewing. When you associate mash with vomiting i i see why <laughs> that's nothing against the show but just uh it's one of those things when you hear that theme song it's like some, something's wrong something's wrong in your house that you're up that late <laughs> i'm sure that's what they're going for when they put those this indication no no that's nothing something's against wrong with, with the household of mash is playing that's my own personal hang-up oh my goodness all right so let's get right into this this episode we begin in korea 1950 we see that on the screen and it also says a hundred years ago and we see a group of men playing golf as the Japanese version of Otis Redding's My Blue Heaven is playing. All right, so wait. It says 1950. Is this entire series a flashback from the year 2050? Like, kind of like How I Met Your Great-Great-Grandmother type of, <laughs> type of deal? No, that's ridiculous. I noticed that too and was like, I wonder if that's just some joke that I'm not getting. It's just, a, it's supposed to be like, because, I mean, when this aired, it was what? 22 years after yeah so they're saying yeah it was like a hundred years ago it was such a long time ago i i tend to think that they were it was a joke of course but i kind of have a serious feeling about this this uh line also i think it was there (laughs) to really show that it was a forgotten war again that if you ask somebody when the korean war was even in 1971 1972 you know, you might not get the response you would get if you asked somebody when World War One or World War Two was, because it you know was forgotten. So I think that's what they're kind of going for um, in a joking, uh, jocular kind of way. Like you know, this is well, we know it was sometime in the past. But we don't know exactly when it was. Probably looking at future generations. Again, World War Two, you can kind of pinpoint exactly when it started with Pearl Harbor, I and mean, everybody knows December seventh, nineteen forty-one, and well, pretty much everyone except yeah. the Lily's generation don't know anything, but. <laughs> um, hey, come you know, on! Just saying, you kids, get off my lawn. We we know how to post to social media. No, yeah, that's, that's useful. Not really. Can't beat the Nazis with that. 
I don't know. A strongly worded Facebook status might make one of them cry. Wow. <laughs> Those new emojis are getting rougher, too. I know. <laughs> so, we see goings-on around camp. We see people sleeping, playing footsie, playing football, popping champagne. And it, it really, they set the tone that, along with the golf at the beginning, it looks like they're having a blast. But then things drastically change. We hear the announcement, here they come, and we see two choppers arrive over the mountains, and we begin to hear this somber theme song, and this is obviously the classic, Suicide is Painless. And everybody rushes to the admitting ward in the operating room, and this actually begins the opening title sequence in the credits. Yeah, that's actually the credits pretty much an opening title sequence for every episode after that. With some minor variations when characters leave the show in the middle of the fourth season. Um, we had Trapper John leave and BJ Honeycutt came into the show and they replaced the scenes with Trapper John with BJ in various other scenes um, in the same motif of the helicopter landing and taking patients down. But yep, every single episode it continues the same intro. And it's interesting, did you know that the theme song Suicide is Painless actually has lyrics. And they they were written by a 14-year-old. Really? Yes. Although the music was composed by Johnny Mandel, he was a Grammy and Oscar-winning composer, the lyrics were written by Mike Altman, the son of the director of MASH the Movie, Robert Altman. Who should have been given psychiatric help at that point. (laughs) Well, he wanted the dumbest lyrics possible, and he tried to write them himself. He just couldn't make it work the way he wanted to so he decided i'll give it to my kid and he came up with these lyrics supposedly in about five minutes wow and now robert altman made seventy five thousand dollars for directing mash the movie but because this song was used also in the tv series and you know obviously the subsequent syndication his son made about two million dollars in song royalties oh my god that's insanity that's awesome Something else interesting to note about this uh, opening sequence is Gary Berghoff, who played Radar in the film and also the television series, actually has a deformity in his left hand. And normally in the show, it's hidden by like a clipboard, a bugle or something else. But it's clear in this opening title as he announces the arrival of the helicopters. Yeah, it's it. they're very good at hiding it. And I always try to look for it in episodes and there you can tell when they... <laughs> They try to, you know, put objects in the way, or he hides it in various ways. But yeah, he, and it's very interesting to say too that if he, the ironic part is if he had this deformity in real life, like he, which he does, and he tried to serve in the army, he would be excused for that very reason. Also, it made sense for the show for him not to keep being yeah, you wouldn't be discreet want to show about it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Huh. So we begin with the iconic Captain Benjamin Franklin, Hawkeye Pierce, and he's played here by, of course, Alan Alda. And he's in the middle of surgery, and as he is in surgery, we hear, like, in voiceover, a letter to his father. And he explains to him that the surgery that they perform, it's not dainty or delicate, it's just simply enough to get the boys back up and on their feet and fighting again. Yeah. Some very serious surgeries they used to perform. It wasn't just, you know, cuts and bruises, basically. And they reference that a lot in the shows. See, I'm kind of... Well, not kind of. I'm definitely a squeamish person when it comes to, like, medical surgeries and stuff. It, what, which is weird, because if it's, like, gore in a horror movie, then normally I'm fine, because I know it's totally bogus. But um, 
things that could actually happen in real life freak me out. So, like, seeing the blood on his gloves, I was going to die watching oh. the episode. <laughs> yeah, I could see if that bothers you. And they really try to, to uh, minimize that, too. Um, it's not like some of the shows you would see nowadays, like, you know, a uh, CSI or something. They, oh, forget it. The, everything is pretty much covered up, and all you see is splatters of blood it. and things. You don't see guts or anything like that, really, or amputations. It's just fake blood yeah. splatter stuff. They, they cover it very well. Yeah, no, it wasn't excessive. It was just enough to rattle me a little. Now, I know that, obviously, we're, we're hearing this letter in voiceover just to give us a little more insight into the character right away and, and a little exposition so we kind of understand. But I just thought it was weird that, you know, he was writing, composing this letter to his father. So I, I kind of wondered what the father would write back. So I took the liberty of writing back to Hawkeye as his father. And uh, here, Sean, I'll send that to you if you don't mind reading it. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hold on a second. <clears throat> Would you like me to be Mr. Pierce? Please. Dear Ben, your mother and I received your letter. It's so nice to hear from you. We're glad to hear that our son is putting his skills to you saving lives. We are so proud. However, we are hoping to hear a little more about where you were stationed, who you were stationed with, you know, day-to-day -day life. This isn't to put down your letter to us. We're thankful we got something from you. <laughs> it's just that we already know you're a surgeon. We get it. We're not sure why you decided to write home with a description of your duties as a surgeon. When I read your letter aloud in the kitchen, your mother stopped washing dishes the sink, turned to me, and said, Do you think we're stupid? Don't do this to your mother. Not to nitpick, but I have to take umbrage to line your letter where you casually say that your surgery is not delicate. Ben, you are a surgeon. You're required to be delicate. There's even a term for delicate accuracy, surgical precision. I didn't work 11 hours in the lumber yard, there's actually a lobster fisherman, to put you through med school just so you could slap someone's organs around with the broad side of a butter knife. She wrote that to us? That's the most bewildering thing. You were so proud of the fact that you decided to put pen and paper and include that line. If I were a betting man, I'd wager you mentally composed the whole letter while performing critical surgery. <laughs> oh, one more thing, Ben. I couldn't help but notice you signed your name Hawkeye. Is that your nickname now or something? It seems strange your mother and I... You weren't called something more relevant in the surgical field. Steady hands, perhaps. Or even Doc. But I suppose you need good eyes to perform surgery. We find this strange. It just seems a waste of all the time your mother and I spent trying to give you a good name. Benjamin Franklin Pierce. Get it? Two prominent figures in American history are your name. Benjamin Franklin and Franklin Pierce. We thought it was pretty clever, but not as clever as Hawkeye. But again, it's nice to hear from you. We hope your next letter will be more composed. With a little more thought and respect. <laughs> Sincerely, your father, Abraham Lincoln Log Pierce. Very nice. Well, first of all, I take umbrage with this letter myself. I think it's pretty accurate. I did my research. Well, you know, he is a lobster fisherman in the, in the novel. You know, I, I, I knew he was from Maine, so I figured that was a 50-50 shot. It, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Another thing, too, is that his father gave him the nickname of Hawkeye because it was his... Do you know where it came from? No, I don't. It was his favorite character from the only book he ever read, according to the novel, which is The Last of the Mohegans. Oh, not The Avengers? 
Not the Avengers. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hawkeye was why he was called Hawkeye Pierce. Okay. So there, but very clever otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they had to do the the leather just to give a background, of course, as you know. Oh, yeah, of know, course. Uh. That, you know, basically is called meatball surgery. They were just kind of patching them together um, and shipping them off. It, it's brought up numerous times in uh, later episodes when the, another character in season six, five, comes in, uh, Charles Winchester, who replaces Frank Burns, who goes nuts and leaves, goes AWOL, not to give any spoilers. Winchester is a very dainty kind of Boston surgeon. Very good surgeon, but they really harp on them that he can't be so delicate and he can't be so, you know, take so much time for each patient because they're just trying they to patch him up and get him out of there. Yeah, time but is of the essence there. They're, you know, they're doing, you know, hundreds if not thousands of patients a week and so, when there's a, a push, so they really need to get them in and out. And you mentioned too, Scott, about this is realistic, the fact that they were having leisure time, as you mentioned, yeah. playing golf and footsies and everything else. <laughs> because it, if you look at the actual historical accounts of the author of the book and the movie, they had these times where basically they had sometimes weeks on ends, days and weeks where there was no action and it was very boring. And then when they would have a, a big push and they try to take a you know a piece of land or a hill or something, that's when they would get all these casualties coming in. So it was like feast or famine. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Every They were coming in in waves. Yeah. So in the middle of this intense surgery, we also see Major Frank Marion Burns, and he's squabbling with Hawkeye, and they're exchanging barbs in the middle of all of this. Frank's a jerk. <laughs> As we'll see. Yeah, in post-surgery, Frank, along with Major Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, played by Loretta Swit, they reprimand Hawkeye for his inappropriate conduct, and Hawkeye explains to him that he wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for the fact that he foolishly accepted President Truman's invitation. I love the line here where Hawkeye tells Frank, you must be tired after all that malpractice you put in. Yeah, they're always, uh, Frank's not a very good surgeon, unfortunately. <laughs> Frank Burns is played by Larry Linville. He played the role of Frank Burns for five seasons on MASH. He was actually left to show after the fifth season because he wasn't getting enough screen time, basically, or the role he thought he should be getting. Yeah. MASH, when it was originally envisioned, I think the actors, including the actor who played uh, Henry Blake, McLean Stevenson, and the actor who played uh, Trapper John McIntyre, really thought that they would be all on equal footing with Alan Alda and all be co-stars and not there would be no, you know, direct person in charge. Yeah, like an ensemble get... cast. Yeah, exactly, ensemble cast. But as the seasons progressed, Alan Alda became a, the breakout star of the show. Not by his, you know, by his own doing, by his acting skill and his, his humor. And I think there was some hard feelings and jealousy, possibly. Yeah. And that's why at the end of the fourth season, you had, you know, two characters leave. Uh, and the fifth season, um, Frank Burns' character left and replaced by other characters as the show progressed. I mean, you could see it right from the pilot episode that Alan Alda was the—he was the star of this show. Even if yeah. it wasn't originally intended, he was like the main focus of the show. His lines were hilarious, and they were delivered hilariously. You know, he did—he yeah. was such so great r right out of the gate. And you could see obviously why this took place, how this progressed over eleven seasons, that he became the main focus of the show. Yeah, very true. Now, there's also, this is kind of like another iconic thing in the show. It's a humorous sign inside of the camp, and uh, it points to different places around the world and tells you how far away they are. And there's a whole bunch of them. They include Boston, Seoul, South Korea, San Francisco, Tokyo, Death Valley, Indianapolis, and San Francisco. Just kind of like a humorous thing. 
you can imagine they probably made one day while they were sitting around. Yeah, and I think the sign, actually, some places get added as time goes on. I think Toledo, which is Klinger, who's a character later on, is added at one point. Okay. San Francisco, I've seen there. So basically, a lot of the hometowns, of course, of the characters. Yeah. So the guys go back to their quarters for a little rest and relaxation, along with uh, another gentleman, Captain Oliver Harmon Jones. And this is where Hojon, who is described as their Korean houseboy, and he's played here by Patrick Adiarty, and he, he makes them some martinis. Now, Patrick Adiarty is not Korean. He's actually from the Philippines, by the way. Oh, that's just horrible, then. <laughs> that is pretty bad. <laughs> now, Hawkeye remarks that someday they should throw away all the guns and invite all the Jokers from the North and the South in here to a cocktail party. Last man standing at the end wins the war. <laughs> it's a pretty good idea. Yeah. I'll go for that. Now, Hawkeye gets a letter in the mail from the dean of his alma mater, and he explains that the dean remembers him quite well. After his first autopsy, he sent him a nervous system. That's a strange line. Yes. I don't know if we're supposed to take that literally, or... I think he did, yeah. He actually cut out the entire nervous system of a person. Nerves and everything, and sent it to him. I don't think... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scott's like, mm, that's not possible. No, I'm trying to think, of, like, did it mean, like, you know, I gave him some, some nerve, or, you know, like, uh, I gave him a spine? Yeah. I think it means that he was quite a character in, in college also. Oh, I can imagine. A, should be a yeah. mash the college years, and he would be you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. quite the cut-up. Mash the college years. It worked for Saved by the Bell. That's right. Technically, it would just be Hawkeye, the college. Yeah, that's right. Hawkeye, that's, there you go. Well, MASH was Hawkeye, the show, idea. for goodness sakes. Hawkeye, well, the that's show. That's true, but. <laughs> so further in the letter here, the dean explains that they will be able to accept Hojon as long as they can get him there and send $1,000 tuition, to which Hojon exclaims, hot dog. Hot dog. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But, you know, it shows, you know, that Hawkeye, he, he goofs around, a little bit of a rebel streak to him, but he actually does have a very good heart. You know, he sees this kid that's, you know, making a martinis in his tent, but he, he thinks about him and his future and, and wants to do whatever he can, the connections that he has to, you know, make a good life for this kid. So, that you know, that's a nice little aspect yeah, of the show. But he also calls him his houseboy. Well, you know, what is he going to do? <laughs> Come on. I don't know. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't see Hawkeye as that much of a... Well, and actually, this is the main plot of this episode with Hojon and going to college. is almost directly pulled, pulled from the book. This is okay. one of the subplots in the book where they have a houseboy named Hojon. In the book, it's the same thing. He actually... In the book, he actually gets drafted by the Korean... South Korean army. And he gets injured have to fix them up basically and after that they decide to send them to Agascoggin College which is Hawkeye's uh, uh, college he went to in Maine. It sounds like a Maine name. Yeah, <laughs> Agascoggin. Yep. And they um, had to come up with this money. It was more I think in the book like $5,000 for tuition And but the letter to the dean was very similar where he said you know, he wrote to the dean and the dean wrote back with the same kind of cutting you know, remarks that they would be glad to accept them if they can get the cash together. The one major difference is we're, we're going to talk about in a minute. Hawkeye and Trapper come with this idea, up with this idea in the, the TV show mm -hmm. to raffle off a three-day pass to Tokyo, a weekend pass to Tokyo, excuse me, um, with, yeah. with, with Lieutenant Dish, who is uh, the hot nurse in the, the camp. Now, uh, interesting fact about Lieutenant Dish, 
there this is one of two episodes where Lieutenant Dish is actually a part of it where Catherine Phillip appears as Lieutenant Dish. Yeah. The other one is Germ Warfare. Yes. And she was also in the the credits. She's one of the nurses that's around the helicopters in every episode. Oh, really? So she gets a couple bucks every time you see her there. Wow, good for her. Um, probably. I don't know. I'm making that up. <laughs> also, just before we continue on to anything else, going to college next year, $2,000 for tuition. I don't know who Hojon killed in order to get this kind of financial package. <laughs> and I'm sure it was cheaper in the 70s, but I'm very jealous. Well, Lily, but- if you knew a hot guy... You know, <laughs> and keep in mind this is 1950, so in, you know it's it was a lot. This is probably the normal price. That was actually pretty expensive, probably 1950 for for college. Yeah, that is a lot of money. The big difference is that in the novel, the way that they raised the money was a lot different. And I thought if you have a second, I'll go through it. Yeah, yeah. In the novel, instead of having a raffle and you know for this weekend pass, they actually took pictures. They saw a picture of Trapper John with a beard. That someone had taken. They're trying to figure out a way to get raise this money. They saw this picture. The actual uh, Father Mulcahy took of Trapper John the beard and commented that he looked like Jesus Christ. So what they did was they figured that if they posed him like that again, he grew out his beard again over a few weeks. They took pictures of him on a cross like that, <laughs> and they sold them around Korea. They would go to different units and everything and sell them to soldiers. It's like, uh, and they signed them. He signed them as Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. And gave them away signed autographs. And that's how they raised the money for, um, they printed like, I don't know, like 10,000 of them. And they, oh, they sold wow. for a buck a piece. <laughs> you yeah, can see why they didn't go with that route th- for the That's TV how show. they raised the money. And they actually <laughs> talked about how they would go to like Baptist units or, you know, uh, National Guard units from down south. And actually put Trapper on a cross, like strap him to a cross, and, and carry him in a truck behind on, on the truck bed. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, have a helicopter lift him up and parade him around. So <laughs> oh my God. that was the original plan of how to raise the money for Hojo. Just, uh, just to let you know. Wow. So it did change up a little bit. Yeah, I can't imagine Wayne Rogers uh, being no, off of that. I, I don't. Wanna, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So after Hojon leaves to tell his folks, he's all excited. Hawkeye, along with Trapper John McIntyre, played by Wayne Rogers here, they discuss how they're actually going to come up with the money for tuition, as well as his clothing and transportation. So it's actually going to be more than the $1,000 tuition. They're, they're going to have to raise a little bit more. Now, the, the Swamp Men, like Hawkeye, have interesting names. Can we talk about how Trapper John got his name? Yeah, please. Trapper John as one of the Swamp Men, got his name, in the novel at least, they don't really mention it in the MASH TV show, John McIntyre was quite uh, the ladies' man back in the day. And he was known for getting ladies in on dates in very compromising situations and trapping them oh, um, my goodness. for certain activities. And that's how he got the nickname Trapper John. Oh, that's terrible. That's absolutely horrible. And you know, you know, knowing that background, right? They made the follow-up show. I guess you could call it a sequel show. Trapper John M.D. We're following the character as a doctor in a hospital. Yes, I'm sure he came up with another way excuse of what his name meant later on in life. But that was the, that's the official Mash novel explanation for his name, Trapper John. Wow. I can certainly take a joke. But I don't think the humor in this show really appealed to me. Maybe it's because I'm female, and pretty much the entirety of this episode is 
I know it's satire and like it's supposed to be a joke and it's completely ridiculous, but really you're auctioning off the body of a woman to raise money. I don't know. Oh, that's we'll get the, into that's that. The that's the funny ridiculous. Part. That's yeah. the funny part as we go on. A couple other things too, just to, to mention that they lines they used in the book quite often that were also carried over like one time onto the show was in the surgery scene we just saw when um you know there was a surgery that was going bad. And Trapper John mentioned to Father Mulcahy that he needed some cross action. I don't know if you, knew, if you picked that up. No, I didn't. Yeah, that was a line that was mentioned quite a bit in the book. And there's a whole subplot about, you know, basically how Father Mulcahy would put a fix in, basically by praying for a, a soldier and do cross action because of his, you know, the Catholic faith mm-hmm. and the cross. And that would, he was a good luck charm, basically, for the, the, the patients. That's the only time in the entire run of MASH I've heard these terms in the pilot. Huh. Because they, they can take them directly from the book. And also... Maybe they just decided that they didn't want to be such a carbon copy of the book. I think so. Anyone. Yeah. They, they said it was, you know, it's pilots are different, too. I mean, there's characters that are different, and they, they change things once the show gets picked up. Another point, too, is there's a, a phrase that Hawkeye uses one time. And I, th- I think it's only the fir- only time I've heard it in the entire series. I could be wrong. He says, finest kinds, as they're drinking the martinis in the swamp. They'd mention in the martinis, it goes, ah, the finest kind. Okay. That's a that's a like a catchphrase of Hawkeye's in the book. He always oh. talking about the finest kind, you know, and mention talking about something. So, oh wow, okay. Um, yeah. So that's actually I think the last line in the book. When he gets home to his kids in the book. And he's married and has kids in the book too. Um he says oh, finest kind, finest kind. So that's uh But they that's the only time I can remember they mention it in oh. the pilot. Yeah, that's that's a line that was just lost on me. I had no idea. Yeah, and it, you know what? The first couple times I saw it too, until I actually read the book, it was lost on me too. Until you know, I heard the background of it and heard it so many times mentioned in the book, and it, you know, kind of stuck out like a sore thumb during the the pilot. So yeah, it's interesting they took the time and the care to put all those things in from the original source material. Yep. Mm-hmm. So in his brainstorming session. Hawkeye asks John what the people around them want more than anything else, and John replies to go home or to Tokyo or whichever comes first. And Hawkeye asks, no, what do they really want? And John replies, sex, except for those baseball perverts. (laughs) And so, as Sean brought out, they decided they were going to have a raffle. So he asks John to make a sign, and he'll have Radar print up some tickets. And Hawkeye said that on the sign it will say, all you can drink. Ten bucks ahead, giant door prize, weekend pass for two in Tokyo, lucky winner to share the company of a gorgeous nurse. Now, this is going to be a big sign, yeah, first well, of all. You know, <laughs> yeah. I got magic markers <laughs> in the 1950s, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is where we get the the whole premise of this episode, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a little skeevy. So we then cut to an office where... Corporal Walter Eugene O'Reilly, better known as Radar, played by Gary Berghoff. He sneaks up on and scares Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake, played here by McLean Stevenson. And Hawkeye and John step into the office to see Blake. They show him the letter for the college and they explain the their idea. And they ask for two weekend passes. And they explain that they're going to raffle them off with the company of one of the nurses whose heart and everything else is in the right place. (laughs) Uh, Now, 
Blake admits that, you know, it's a good enough cause, you know, sending this this kid to college, but he's a little reluctant to trust them. And I like the, the fact where he says, he asks them, why don't I trust you guys? To which John replies, because we're not trustworthy. Yeah. And so Blake asks which nurse they conned into doing this. And Hawkeye said, well, I haven't approached her yet, but there could only be one choice. A girl with a face that doesn't quit. A girl with so much body she should be continued on to the next girl. And in unison, John and Hawkeye say, Lieutenant Dish. So then we cut to Lieutenant Maria Dish Schneider. And she's painting her toenails. And Henry tells Hawkeye that she'll never agree to it. But Hawkeye begs to differ, saying that she's putty in the hands of the master. And we see Hawkeye enter the tent and kiss her on the neck. And uh, we get this very creepy montage of Hawkeye's harassment. He's stalking poor Lieutenant Dish, and he's hiding in, in various places around her, popping out to surprise her, and in various places like the, the library, a trunk, a sleeping bag sack, and even the shower. Uh, this is uh, certainly uh, no boundaries uh, from Hawkeye's standpoint. Yeah. Now, Lieutenant Dish is a character that I don't think she appears prominently in the book, but she does appear prominently in the movie. And it's actually, the movie even sleazes it up even more. I'm not even going into what, how she appears in the movie, but it's, it's not like that in the book. So they really took a downturn for the movie with Lieutenant Dish's uh, appearance. But yeah, like Lily said before, only two other appearances um, in the pilot episode of MASH and that one episode, I think in season one. Besides her constant appearance in the, uh, the opening scene. Yeah. Now, many times during this montage, she's rejecting Hawkeye. Once should have been enough, but no, he was very persistent. And she says no, including telling him that she's engaged. Yeah. And uh, that should have ended things, I would say, to that point. But no, Hawkeye continues to kiss her neck. And uh, they are spied on by Frank and Hot Lips, who call them sickening and animals. And then... Uh, we see Frank kissing Hot Lips on the neck. And I think that this is not a, a very interesting point because a big theme of MASH, and it's it's despicable, it very <laughs> really is, is the adultery that's going on uh, with the married members of the 4077th, including Frank Burns, who is married and has daughters. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh, boy. Um, in the show, and it's mentioned numerous times, and obviously he's fooling around with, with Hot Lips. Colonel Blake is said to be married. And has children, like three children. And he, throughout the series, is fooling around with nurses. Trapper John makes no secret that he fools around with nurses and he's married. The one character that they didn't make married or made him single is Hawkeye. And I think they did that on purpose. In the book, he was married. And I think they... So, instead, they made him a creepy stalker. Well, I think it's they made him a more likable character because he wasn't... Uh, at least he wasn't cheating on his wife. Let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> Whereas the other ones are, are very skeevy because they're cheating on their, their wives, so, you know, with people in, in the war and seem to have no conscience at all about it. Whereas Hawkeye has an excuse because he is, you know, he is single. And It was like this point in the show where I'm like, okay, well, I'll endure the rest of it because... <laughs> no, this, this is this... terrible. <sighs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, I don't think it was too far off base. Lily, I'm right there with you. This is Sean's favorite show. I I'm yes. on your side. I know. I'm like, no <laughs> hey. wonder. Hey. <laughs> no, but Dish is like, what a terrible fiance. Yeah, well. What a terrible lady, too. You know, yeah, that's reality. Report him. Well, yeah, maybe so, and may maybe especially of that time. But report him to your commanding officer immediately. 
Yeah, so I don't, I, I don't think they would have done anything. I mean, they have no, no respect for military discipline as it is. I mean, I know. And I think it really another cultural thing. If you think of the fifties, most people think of a squeaky clean, you know, American dream type of fifties where. They were, you know, husbands and wives and families and leave it to Beaver and, you know, everything was happy and suburbia. And mm. that's just not the reality. That's, I think MASH is more the reality of how things were in the, the 19 every decade than they were the, portrayed in, you know, the media of the time. Yeah. I kind of think of racism, misogyny, and homophobia in the 50s, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> 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 No, I I felt bad that I wrote this whole thing for Sean to read, so I was like, you know, I should write something for Lily to read. So I I wrote for Lily what Dish would have written to her fiancé at this point. So here, Lily, here's something for you to read. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right, hold on. Let me pull it up here. <clears throat> Dear honey, I'm so sorry for the delay in writing back to you. It's been so crazy here. I'm stationed with such an amazing surgical team. They are so skilled. No matter how seriously someone is injured, I believe that they could not be treated in a better place in this world than our canvas tents. The surgeons here are so friendly. I was just sitting there one night, painting my toenails, and one of them snuck up behind me and started kissing my neck. <laughs> Don't worry. I told him I was engaged. Besides, he just wanted to be rough. <laughs> he just—he <laughs> just wanted me to be raffled off as a prize to raise money for his house. <laughs> I told him I wasn't interested. But after he shared some pretty persuasive words with me in the shower, I realized it was <laughs> for a good cause. <laughs> Books are something for a houseboy and a weekend of good fun, plus a little booze too. See, I told you I would stay positive out here, just like you wanted. Anyway, I'd write more, but I'm just about to leave for a vacation weekend in Tokyo with the chaplain. Don't worry, he's not too religious. <laughs> okay, talk to you soon. Sincerely, your fiance, Maria Dish Schneider. P.S. I forgot to tell you, my name is Dish now. Isn't it cute? It's a reference to how Hawkeye calls me lunch. <laughs> we have fun. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> I sense a little sarcasm in these letters for some reason. Alright, so after all this, we, we come back to Hawkeye's tent where John's counting the money. And so far, it's about $600. Hawkeye tries to steal some money out of Frank's Bible, but Frank then comes in and freaks out on them and... He's telling them that they're turning this place into a brothel and a distillery, and he grabs their homemade gin mill. And he tries to make a break for it while holding it, but he ends up dropping it where it shatters. And Frank actually seems somewhat remorseful and apologizes, but Hawkeye and John tell him it's no problem. Then they put a sleeping bag sack over his head and kick him out of the tent. <laughs> we then cut to Blake's office where Hawkeye and John complain about Frank's behavior, and Hawkeye even calls Frank a guy that thinks he's all 12 disciples. I like that. I thought that was funny. Yeah, there, there's some great one-liners in this show. It's just, there's really some funny jokes in here. And Blake tells him that, you know, he has to do something about the situation. So he's going to revoke the weekend passes, and they can forget about the raffle tomorrow night. And Blake even says to them, it's all for the best in his eyes, because he has to see his commanding officer in Seoul that weekend, 
And he wasn't really too happy about a party taking place in his absence anyway. And, of course, Hawkeye and John now share a very knowing, mischievous glance. Huh. <laughs> so we then cut to the song, Happy Days Are Here Again, in Japanese. This is, it's funny hearing these, uh, these songs in Japanese. And it's being played from the loudspeaker, and Blake leaves for Seoul on his helicopter. As he's stepping onto the helicopter, Radar gives Hawkeye an envelope, and inside are the two weekend passes. Yeah, this really shows a side of Radar that you don't really see much in later seasons. The first uh, first half of the first season, or maybe the entire first season, Radar is a little more mischievous, and can do it does things like this, where he's actively trying to finagle passes, and will sell passes to anyone who, who wants them, and... There's even an episode where he mails home a Jeep piece by piece <laughs> in the first season. Um, and as they really changed his character in the later season where he becomes this naive farm boy, really, where, you know, this kind of activity in those later seasons would be unthinkable for him, really. Huh. So and I think that's about he was in the movie, too. He was kind of the same way, not naive, but he was more of a rapscallion, I guess you can say. Um, and they just changed him up, give him that naivete. But it was funny here when uh, Hawkeye asked Radar, you know, when did Blake sign these? And he said uh, when he thought he was ordering a ton of ice cream. (laughs) Fudge Ripple, in fact, he specifies. That is an ongoing joke that Radar does try to push, in the first season at least, in front of Henry. Doesn't get away with it with Colonel Potter in later episodes. With Henry, he definitely just pushes stuff in front of him to, you know, sign this, sir, sign this, sign this. Kind of showing the whole, there's so much paperwork in the army gag. Yeah, yeah. Um, doesn't know what he's signing half the time, and Radar just kind of says, "Oh, don't worry about it, sir. You know, I'll take care of it for you." <laughs> so they they're all excited. Hawkeye and John think their plans are back on to have this raffle, but an announcement comes over the PA, and it says that both day and night shifts will be confined to duty in the admitting ward tomorrow night. All other activities are canceled. There will be no exceptions. By order of the acting commanding officer, Major Frank Burns. Yes. So the announcement ends, and they look down, and there's Frank with a big smile on his face. He's kind of strutting around the camp. And that changes once Hawkeye picks up a rock. I thought that was pretty funny. You see his expression immediately change. But then Hawkeye ends up throwing the rock at the loudspeaker instead. (laughs) So at this point, the show takes a commercial break. So why don't we take this opportunity to take a commercial break ourselves? We will pay some bills, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm an ant, and let's face it, I want to live in your house. I do. I, I really do. I just, I want to get in there. I just spend every waking hour, just, I'm just thinking of ways to get in your house. Oh, I, I can see you, like, through the little cracks under the door. I see you in the morning eating those bowls of, like, sugar-covered cereal. Oh, it looks so good. Oh, it's crazy to me to think there's so much sugar, and you get to eat all of it. Oh, you know how bad I want to swim in that? Uh, it'd be like... It'd be like Scrooge McDuck swimming in his money vault. That's what it's like to me. Yeah, I I know about DuckTales. I, I, I had a friend that used to crawl in those little holes, you know, in the back of your TV. And he'd tell me about all your, you know, your TV shows and stuff. And you, you guys actually watched The Office after Steve Carell left? <laughs> Man. I mean, we do, like, little ant plays and stuff. But even then, we know when to stop. But anyway, no, anyway yeah. I, I want to eat all the sugar in your house so bad. And that's all I think about. I just think about, I want to eat all the sugar in your house. And then, like, maybe, like, run around on your forehead while you sleep. Do a little victory lap. And then uh, maybe my little ant dance. Like, you know, I'm, I'm an ant. And that 
that stuff is funny to us like that that that's like ant humor and uh you know the only way i guess you could stop us is if you had some sort of silencer bug spray it won't kill bugs but it'll shut them up oh man and we're back now when we return from commercial break it's the next morning the medical staff is attending to patients Frank walks in and Hawkeye tells him to come over to listen to the heartbeat of this patient, telling him it's pretty wild. I don't know about you guys, but if if I'm in this situation as a patient, I'm lying down on the bed, and the doctor <laughs> yeah. said, hey, listen to this, this is pretty wild. You know, <laughs> play your jokes on your own time. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, Frank is a medical professional, of course, so he puts in his stethoscope, he leans over to listen, and Ginger... Another nurse hands Hawkeye a syringe, and he jams it into Frank's back, and Frank immediately becomes sedated, and he slumps over, and he has to be carried. Really terrible. Well, you know, you know the do. old sedative in the back yeah, trick. Yeah, come on. You ever heard that before? <laughs> Jab him in the spine, for goodness sakes. Yeah, right in the butt. <laughs> so they bring him over to a bed. They wrap his face in gauze, like, entirely. And Hawkeye orders that he be sedated every hour on the hour. So, of course, what happens now? We cut to big band music playing on the PA system, and everyone's dressed up in hats and Hawaiian shirts and robes, and they're attending the raffle party. Everything's back on again. Until Margaret gets suspicious of what's going on. Yes. Okay, can I just point out another fact that bothered me about this show? Please. And who is the one that spoils all the fun? Another woman. That's <laughs> yes, right. it's true. I was like, all right, I wonder why this is just <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? Uh, How madam. dare you? <laughs> How dare you, madam? I take umbrage to that. Man, get your diploma. You think you're all high, high and muddy at this point. Uh-oh. Hey. Boy, I... oh boy. <laughs> no, I, I, I dislike Frank Burns as much as I dislike... Margaret. Margaret actually changes throughout the series. She does get a little less, you know, the way she is. And, you know, dumps Frank eventually. So, I mean, she she's not all bad. But she's very military, and, you know, it's just her personality. Yeah. And they're trying to raise money for a Korean kid that's really Filipino to go to college in Maine. I mean, come on. <laughs> By selling somebody's body. Well, we're going to talk about that. Will we? <laughs> yes, we will. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you guys watched the whole episode or not. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, Hot Lips Houlihan, which, of course, Hot Lips, there's another issue in the show. But Yeah. Well, but she, Hot Lips, like, becomes the hero of the episode, really. Well, she's not, like, a squeaky queen person herself, if you look at her personality. I mean, she's she's fooling around with a married man, knowing that he's no, married. I'm not... You know, she's not, like, a, a saint. Oh, they're all flawed no, characters, I'm... for sure. Yeah, definitely, so... Right, and it, I'm and just the saying. Funny thing is the reason they call her that is that she's, they try to hide it, pretend like nothing's going on, Frank and, and Margaret, through the entire relationship, and everybody knows what's going on. And they're not fooling anybody, but they have this, like, uh, I'm better than you airs all the time. So that's, you know, basically the reason why they, she's a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. So in the middle of the party, Houlihan walks in, and, and she's demanding to know where Major Burns is, and he's now been missing. And Hawkeye tells her that, you know, he went over to the enemy side since they offered him $100 more a week and a royalty on bedpans. Which is very funny online. <laughs> yeah. 
And she threatens to have Hawkeye arrested, which, you know, certainly should have been the case. But Hawkeye explains that because of a recent Canadian military operation nearby, there will be many more casualties flooding into the camp soon, and he's not going to work if he's busted. Yeah, which is another line from the book. There's a, a reference to that, too, where they're about to get arrested, and, you know, it's mentioned that they do what they're going to do, the scheme they pull in the book, because they know that there's this... They got word that there's this uh, push going on with the Canadian uh, forces, and that they, there's no way they would be arrested if they had to perform surgery. So. Oh, that makes it more evil. Yeah. So we then cut to Hot Lips Houlihan on the phone, and, and she's calling Blake's commanding officer, General Hammond. And we get a very strange moment where Hammond is being told of the phone call at his table. They're at, like, a restaurant. And he smiles... And then we get an immediate flashback to Hammond and Houlihan being romantic in the past in another hospital. Yeah. And then we quickly cut back and forth as Houlihan continues to search for Frank. Uh, it was like some weird editing here. I guess they were getting a little experimental, I guess. Well, they're just trying to show, and this comes up in numerous other episodes in the series, that Margaret has, she's very popular with senior officers. And so it's, it's a recurring theme. Yeah. In the series where, you know, all these generals know of her and know her, know of Hot Lips, and they've had rendezvous with her also. <laughs> and this is just showing that he's one of those those gentlemen, and that's why he's so anxious to get to the 4077th and see what's going on. Okay. Um, mm. And people might say, you know, like, well, how can he get there so quickly? Because he does appear, you know, on the chopper pretty quickly. Yeah. Keeping in mind that Seoul, Korea, is only about 30 miles from um, the 30th parallel. Oh, okay. So it's not that far of a distance, uh, especially by helicopter. It wouldn't take that long to get from Seoul to the 4077. So Houlihan continues her search for Frank. Back at the festivities, Chattanooga Choo Choo in Japanese is playing, oddly enough. Best song ever. <laughs> <laughs> and Hawkeye announces to the crowd that because of their generosity and their thirst, they were able to raise over $1,800. Meanwhile, Houlihan is about to administer another syringe of sedative to the mystery patient, but upon seeing his posterior, she realizes that she has found Frank. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Yeah, it was. So just then, at the party, Radar hears a helicopter land. Is he human Radar? Is that what we're supposed to gather yeah, from Yeah, but that's, that's his whole character. His nickname is Radar because he has his uh, supposed... Like, six cents, basically, to be able to uh, hear events before they're going to happen. That's the whole joke about radar. Spidey sense. Basically, yes. Yeah, so he can hear choppers before. You know, a lot of times in the series, he's saying, oh, choppers. No one else is like, there's no choppers. What are you talking about? And then uh, a minute later, there's choppers coming in. So <laughs> that's why it's called radar. He's the precursor to Warpath from X-Men Days of Future Past. Correct, yes. I see. Very, very accurate, yes. <laughs> So we cut to see Blake and Hammond, and they're getting off the helicopter. Back at the party, Lieutenant Dish is about to select a slip of paper from the raffle jar, where she notices that one is... Now, I couldn't tell. Is it, like, taped or taped. glued? Taped okay, the so it's like of the jar. Inconspicuously, or I guess, I mean, she's tilting the whole bottom of the jar. It should have been seen. Uh, it's affixed to the bottom, and Hawkeye smiles. And she suspected that Hawkeye was going to rig the thing so he could have the weekend with her anyway. And that's the whole joke, because it's mentioned earlier by Trapper that, you know, Hawkeye mentioned something about fixing it, that he was going to win it, basically, when, yeah. when he was counting the $600 and how much, you know, the raffle tickets they had so far. And basically, Trapper made a, 
a line or uh, said a statement like, you know, if um, we'll be selling tickets to your lynching if you win this. Oh, Basically really? saying that there's no way that he could, you know, people would be outraged if he, he Hawkeye won the, the thing. It'd be, they knew it would be rigged in that case. Yeah, too suspicious. So that's where you're, you kind of mm-hmm. have this, this feeling now, oh boy, Hawkeye did do it. And actually earlier you see Radar putting, rifling through the uh, raffle tickets to <laughs> fix the one at the bottom of the jar. Oh, okay. Uh, while people are having a party, as a scene that shows them doing that. Um, but like you said, this is the feeling you're going in now that Hawkeye has rigged it so he can win the trip with Dish to the weekend pass. And maybe kill. I'm an idiot, but I, that's where I thought it was going. Yeah. That's what a lot of people did. So Hawkeye announces to the crowd that the winner of the raffle is Father John P. Mulcahy. Much to his surprise. Yep. Interesting point about Father Mulcahy. He's actually played in the pilot by a different actor than the entire rest of the series. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, in this episode, it's a, an actor named George Morgan. He was a an Irish-looking red-headed doctor. They, after the pilot, changed up this character for William Christopher, who didn't look as Irish as um, George Morgan, but played the same character for the rest of the series. So the only appearance of George Morgan as Father Mulcahy, I don't even think he has a line. In it. I think no, I don't think so. You see him getting drunk at one point um, during the party <laughs> with a, a lay on. And, um, you know, obviously they did this in joke that Hawkeye spun this around where he saved the chastity of Lieutenant Dish. So she can go on her weekend and not feel pressured because Father Mulcahy is a priest. And okay, big, and that, that those was. Those shenanigans the... going on. All right, so I, I was trying to figure out, is it, you know, because I, obviously I don't watch MASH really. I haven't seen much of the series because I, I didn't know if. if he was just kind of doing his buddy a solid here by having him win, or if no. this was just kind of like, like you said, to, you know, allow her to go with somebody honorable. Yes. Okay. Uh, someone honorable where she wouldn't have to worry about being violated in any way or, or having anything happen. Right, yeah. And she could feel comfortable doing it, and, you know, it was a perfect out for Hawkeye. And, and Which uh, makes a lot hey. more sense, but so. it, it maybe it should have been, maybe a line mm-hmm. here where he tells Trapper, like, you know, you know, Don't worry put, about that priest. He's not going to point shenanigans on the nurse. Or like, you know. I'll make, I'll make sure you know nothing happens, well, or something like you that. Got to make sure it's implied, you know. But isn't this this priest is at this party with alcohol and other women? Isn't he like dancing around with them? Yeah, yeah that's why I didn't get it. Like I thought, and I thought, well, why did the why did the priest even have a slip of paper with his name on it? You know, and it if and they the, made it if they made him like kind of standing in the corner, like not wanting to participate. I, I that would make more sense to me. And it's very but, w- very well he might not have had a um a slip. They might have just planted it in there just you know just to get him to win. Yeah. Now, obviously they did plant it in there, but maybe he never even entered the contest. He just entered it for him. Well, that would explain his surprise. Exactly. Yeah. He, I think there, isn't there even a line that says he didn't remember or something like that. Maybe I'm just thinking that he didn't remember entering it. So in you know back in this time, Priester looked at as uh you know honorable men who have this vow of chastity so they would well, they would okay. be the safest person to go you know to a weekend trip with basically yeah even so what couldn't a hawkeye just told dish hey you know don't worry when you do this you'll be safe i'll hey, maybe you he know, did you're gonna... cuz she knew it was rigged obviously so no but she yeah, she but, thought he was she... going to he was going to pull his own name well, she said that. Right. It really shows, I think, a good part of Hawkeye's personality, though. That he is he is an honorable person, you know, to a point. Yeah. Um, and he's not going to try to 
You know, he's he knew he first of all he knew he couldn't do it because he'd be run out of town basically, and probably be, would have been lynched, <laughs> and no one would have trusted him ever again. So he had to keep up his reputation, and you know he wanted to make probably in some way wanted to make her feel comfortable too. <laughs> probably in some, in some way. way, you know. <laughs> so it was, I I still think it was an honorable thing. Where he no, I mean he could have easily rigged it for himself or even right. you know somebody else, another guy. He didn't. He rigged it for the the one person he knew wouldn't it be a, a liability for Lieutenant Dish. I suppose in, in terms of the situation, it was a good solution. The situation is because of him oh, in the first place. Not a good situation. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. It's a bad situation. But at least, you know, uh, probably a good outcome. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I agree. The best could have been Hojon. That could have been. Exactly. <laughs> he could have been Hojon, you know. Yeah, it's true. So Hammond walks in at this point, and he says to Hawkeye, Do I understand that the priest of this outfit has just won a weekend with a nurse in Tokyo? And Hawkeye replies, It's a prayer come true. <laughs> oh, that was a pretty funny line. So now Hammond tells Hawkeye and, and John that they're both under arrest. We cut now to Hot Lips Houlihan dragging the staggering and gauze-covered Frank Burns over to the party. And as Houlihan enters the tent with Burns, Hammond looks to her with glee and says, Hot Lips. And Hawkeye and John are very amused. Hammond tells them that they're going to be court-martialed. The hearing will be held right there, and that's where they're going to serve their time. And, you know, they, they tell him, oh, yeah, you know, that's a good idea. That's something that I would have done in your situation. But the helicopters that you're about to hear are going to be filled with Canadians. And without them, a lot of those kids are not going to be able to get home. Yeah. And immediately, everybody exits the tent. They get ready to attend to the wounded, including General Hammond. Who is a who is a doctor? Yeah, he's you know it's his his role as general of the surgical corps in, in Korea. So, so we cut to the next morning where Hammond he's he's putting his uniform jacket back on and he tells Henry that he hadn't put a stretch in like that for years. Hammond tells Henry that the two maniacs Hawkeye and McIntyre are the best surgeons he had ever seen, and they even made him feel like a horse doctor. Hmm. No offense to veterinarians who, who do a vital service. Yeah, come on. So, <laughs> he says, make sure you don't lose them, not even to me. So Hawkeye and McIntyre, they walk out in handcuffs and they're they're ready to be arrested. They're ready to go. You know, they'll, they'll do anything to leave. Yeah. But Blake explains that Hammond was too impressed to have them arrested. Which is another part of the, in the book, there's also a scene where they do that too. Um, when they pull a shenanigan and basically, like I said, they are spared because they have to go to work as surgeons. And later on, they try to sit in front of Henry's tent, all cha- handcuffed together to be taken away. Um, so really just another scene from the book that's played out. Now, is this a running theme in the show that they, they want out? Um, not a running theme. Not as much as like Klinger, who is a character later on, played by Jamie Farr, um, who basically wears dresses in every episode. To try to get a section eight. <laughs> um, it's a very funny character. Um, you know, they mention it. They want to go home, but they never actively try to get it out of the army. I guess they they kind of realize that's where they're stuck for the time being. And I'm sure if they they would jump on a chance to go home if they had if they got an opportunity. Yeah, like that's how they write off you know Trapper John's um, character is that he got his points or his I mean, required time of service and he got sent home. But they're not actively trying to do schemes or anything to get home or anything, no. Okay, yeah, because it seemed like they wanted out right from the beginning. And I'm thinking, wow, he's going to serve 11 years, so... <laughs> yeah. be interesting to see 
how he deals with that eventually. There's a, there's a funny moment. Hawkeye tells John as they walk away that, you know, they got to give up this preoccupation with keeping people alive or they'll never get out of there. Yeah. And, uh, he says, we're going to take more drastic measures, like using rusty instruments. <laughs> yeah. McIntyre suggests stop washing their hands. Yeah. They, you know, they, they, they don't, it's just where really shows no one wants to be there. I mean, it's just their, their lives are disrupted. They are not army officers. And I think that's the biggest thing yeah. you can take from this is that they're civilians that are surgeons and happen to be officers in the army, but they don't want to be there. You know, they don't want to be doing what they're doing. And it's, it's goes for the entire camp, really. You know, even Henry, who's not a uh, career army officer, he's just the guy that was in the National Guard and called up. And this happens to be a colonel because that's what rank they gave him, you know, in command. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank Burns and Margaret. They really have some of the worst personalities, too. I mean, you could say that Hawkeye and Trapper have bad personalities and bad traits like they all do oh certainly <laughs> but you know frank is all gung-ho army yay yay but then he's also very racist as you know doesn't want to work as the series goes on in north korean prisoners of war or chinese or even south korean prisoners or not prisoners but you know wounded really yeah there's hmm. many scenes like that where he talks about how they're yeah, not working on them they're a foreigner you know mm-hmm. um so they're really very hypocritical and Frank is, shows up to be a coward in the long run. I mean, he's just a spineless guy, you yeah. know, who is, you know, basically tries, shoots his own foot off numerous times, basically trying to be a, a, a Rambo type guy, and he's just not. So, and that's fine, you know, if they give the characters bad qualities like that, like they're racist and stuff. But you know, if it's served as an indictment of those qualities. Yeah. And not a glorification or, you know, like laughing it off as, you know, this is a funny thing. And obviously MASH does not do that. Yeah, It's not. You know, the army is is really portrayed a lot of times as this big bureaucratic red tape organization. It shows the the horrible part of, of war, which is the casualties and the death. And, you know, how they try to stay sane, I think, by living through it and trying to get through it. Yeah. Is actually, you know, in, in Hawkeye's character, we talked about this before, it really goes through these one episode, he's all, you know, happy-go-lucky Hawkeye, and the next episode, they might write him as, you know, very dramatic, very uh, sorrowful, very, um, you know, this horrible war sort of thing. There's actually a Futurama episode where they have a, uh, an episode that kind of spoofs MASH. Uh, is that war is the H? That- war is the H word, yeah. War is the H word, yeah. <laughs> And there's like a mash type futuristic scene, and there's a robot called um, the IHawk, who's a robot surgeon, and he has uh, it just talks like Hawkeye, like Alan Alda, and it has the same kind of wit, and he has a switch in the back of him that he flips from like what are the two settings like morose and um, oh, I forget what the other one was, but yeah, yeah morose is definitely one of them. Yeah, and like I don't know, happy I guess is the other or something like that. So he yeah. flips it, and he when he flips the switch, he's one time laughing and giggling and. You know, the the funny Hawkeye, and then he flips the switch, and he's, you know, the very, oh, this war is horrible. It's uh, played by Maurice LaMarche, who does a great Alan Alda impression. Yes. Now, as great as Maurice LaMarche is, because he's, he's an awesome voiceover artist. He does, in fact, he does the voice of Kiff in the show as well, Kiff mm-hmm. Croker. Yep. They're the best Alan Alda impression on this planet, other than Alan Alda himself, is done by Peter Serafinowicz. He is a British actor. He had his own sketch show in England. He, he did a couple of other amazing shows, uh, Look Around You. He was also a, had a guest spot on Parks and Recreation. He was the voice of Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace. 
Look on YouTube for Peter Serafinowicz, Alan Alda, and it is an otherworldly impression. Unbelievable. <laughs> he, he probably does Alan Alda's voice better than Alan Alda. It is that good. And considering that he is British and can pull off not only this American accent, but Alan Alda in the American accent, it's amazing. And I, I'm not uh, over overselling it. You, it's definitely worth checking out. I had to throw that in, sorry. Okay, no, that's fine. <laughs> so this episode ends, you know, on an, in a noble way, I would say. You know, they, they just saved a bunch of lives. They're kind of joking around with each other. They're not obviously serious. And we get this aerial shot of the camp. But of course, no, they can't end it like that. They have to uh, try to hit on, on two ladies that are, are there. And, uh, no, as the ladies go their separate ways, they're trying to follow. And then they realize, oh, they're handcuffed together and they're kind of stuck. <laughs> yeah, they, they still can't get away from it. Yep, that's true. Trying to go their separate directions with the girls and not happening. So then we get a very unique style of closing credits. It's similar to that of Mash the Movie. You can see they were definitely trying to make the connection here. A voice comes on the attention, PA system attention. saying, the see if I can do it here. To the Attention, attention. The following hospital. personnel are assigned to the 4077th Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And then we get these like circular wipes. And they're, they feature the Alan actors Alda. of the show. And the Sean PA announcer Lily. reads the actor's name. Alan Alda. Sean and Lily. Etc. I wish. <laughs> yeah, this, is, but, this happens a few times in a few episodes they do this. Especially like near the end of a, se- a season they do it. End of the first season they do it again, I think. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. And it's funny that this mentioned that looking at some uh, trivia for this episode that G. Wood, who played General Hammonds, Patrick Ar- Ariate are listed as assigned to the 4077th when they're really not. I mean, <laughs> yeah, just yeah. in this episode, so they're not technically personnel of the 4077th. But yeah, that's not true. I don't yeah. think General Heyman appears more than one or two more times. And Ho-John, too, he isn't really... Yeah, he's all, well, he's off to college. That's true. That's followed by a more traditional closing credits afterwards. But yeah, yes. it's just kind of a funny, funny way to end it. Yeah, I've never really seen it done that way before. It's very cool. So what was everybody's thoughts upon <laughs> watching this episode? I think we got a little glimpse into what everybody's thinking, but uh, anyth- anything you would like to close with? <sighs> <laughs> um, while the show does deserve... It was an important show, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people liked it. it. It was a good show to some people, or probably most that watched it, but... Um... I would say definitely not me. <laughs> yeah. I I'm sorry, but I can't appreciate some of the misogynistic themes and humor in the show, even if it is satire. It's like not something I want to watch, you know. Different times, different generation, yeah. I guess. Generational. Okay, Scott, go ahead. What's your? No, I, I agree with Lily. You know, it's not like we have this evil character, or we have this. No, I shouldn't say evil character, but it's not like we have this this guy and he's like the sleaze of the camp. He's the one hitting on all these ladies and trying to get them involved in these schemes and taking advantage of them. No, it's pretty much like everybody, including the hero of the show, Hawkeye. You know, he's kind of sleazy, not as sleazy, so that kind of makes him our the guy we're rooting for. But yeah, like Lily, I mean, even though I, I'm much older than Lily, it's not a show made for me. I can definitely appreciate how great it is, though. It is an iconic show, uh, a very important show to the history of television, uh, from the theme song to the characters, you know, to the finale. I mean, the only 
like Sean brought out earlier in the episode, just huge ratings for the finale. The only thing that even comes close to it nowadays is Super Bowls. Yeah. I mean, just to give you an idea of how many people were interested, had vested interest in this show and wanted to see the finale and see how everything came, you know, to a close. Yeah. But sure. again, not, not a show I grew up watching. Again, well, here's another thing too, is I was a Nick at Night addict growing up. I loved, you know, Dick Van Dyke show, Mary Tyler Moore, all those shows. If MASH was on Nick at Night, maybe I'd be, you know, humming a different tune right now. Because maybe it would have been like Sean, a show I grew up with. But Nick at Night did not run MASH. It was on syndication elsewhere. And so it's not really a show I can look back and say I grew up on it. So, again, not a show made for me. But that being said, I have tremendous uh, respect and reverence for its spot in TV history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... So Sean is the only one well, that likes this show. I'm gonna say, if you don't like Mash, I got some advice. Okay, and this is serious. You should go and call up Netflix, <laughs> or go to the website, cancel your Netflix account right now, cancel it, take your TV, unplug the cable box, and plug everything else. Take your TV, and go down to the ocean, and throw your TV in the ocean, <laughs> and walk back home, and shame. With your head hung low, and stare at the wall. That's I all got I'm a busy say. day tomorrow. <laughs> yep. Because Mash, I love Mash, and I think it's a great show. I think it's a great um, commentary, and I think I understand where you're coming from, both of you guys. I understand. I more grew up with Mash. I mean, yeah. It was I was a youngster when it was out. I don't I don't remember watching it. Of course, I was too young to watch it live when it was still on TV, but. I did watch it quite a bit on reruns, and it's just a part of, um, you know, part of growing up, and I think it really shows a generational gap. I, I really do. This is the first thing that shows a generational gap for me. You kids. <laughs> you kids. No, I mean, you can definitely see why this show was so successful. You know, it, it, it provided a lot of healing at a time yeah. when the country needed it, especially dealing with that subject and it's funny like the jokes oh hilarious when they're they're funny yes. but i can't i just i just don't want to watch a show no i don't blame you that that's your has... prerogative i i get it it's just my wife is the same way she's not really a fan of um you know the adultery and she's always we do watch it together and she's you know like oh i can't believe you know these these characters and that sort of thing but it was shocking to me and i mean look, I'm not... you gotta look beyond that i think you gotta yeah. look beyond you know the whole theme of the of the you know, of the story. And, you know, I grew up in a time, this is age dating myself, when the, the Vietnam War was not too far out of people's minds. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would, I was a kid. Yeah. Vietnam was only, had ended, you know, 10 or, or less years before this time. So this is, like Scott said, this is right in the middle of um, the end of the Vietnam War. People were just fed up with it. And, you know, you had a lot. the The key demographic was was probably people. You know, this took place in 1950. When that came out, 22 years later, when a lot of people who are watching this in their 40s now, late 30s, early 40s, mid 40s, were probably in the Vietnam War as yeah. the, the same kind of character. So maybe it helped them heal. Maybe it helped them, you know, get through what they had to deal with. You know, and even if it was ridiculous, they you know still were able to kind of it was appeal to them. You know. 
No. Yeah, I, I understand. I just think it's easier for you to look past that being... I. Yeah. And you, you, we always tend to like what we grew up watching anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's also that's true. That's a big part of it. And too. I'm not like saying you're a terrible you person. You say I'm a terrible person. Show. You said it. <laughs> no, I just you. I like Darth Vader, but I'm not going to cut off anybody's hands. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, main college acceptance letters, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can always talk to us on Twitter, at hittingplay. Uh, do you guys have anything you'd like to plug? Sure do. Uh, on YouTube, you can find me, Lilliputian22. Uh, I do video game commentary. I make some stupid jokes. Uh, I'm on Twitter, the same handle, Lilliputian22. Okay, and my plugs this week would be... The remaining cast members of MASH. Oh, you had a... Um, <laughs> what? That's my plug. I can say whatever I want in my plug. Um, also, the um, Houston Astros. I like to plug them. They're doing great this season. <laughs> Everybody follow the Houston Astros. Huzzah. They're in first place in whatever division they're in. What division are they in, Scott? You know? They are in the American League West now. American League West division. Houston Astros. They're going to win the World Series this year. Mark my words. Worlds. Words. Or mark my words. The Houston Astros win the World Series. <laughs> Them or the Chicago Cubs. I'm not sure which. Oh, boy. Well, this is the year for the Cubs, right? Back uh, to yes. the Future Part that's 2. Right. They're going to win over yeah. Miami. That's true. Well, that's not going to happen. Miami's also in the National League. But Well, it's going to happen. Trust me. We'll Somehow see. it will happen. <laughs> and finally, I'd like to plug the Barnesville High School Class of 2015. And please don't screw things up too badly. Thank you. <laughs> oh, one, one thing I, I forgot to mention, too, when Sean brought up about the remaining actors from MASH, I meant to mention there was a movie that came out this year called The Longest Ride. And it's about, like, uh, a love story. It's written by Nicholas Sparks. It's, like, the guy that wrote The Notebook. So it's one of those movies. I don't know if you guys ever saw the trailers or the commercials for it. I think no. he's like a rodeo rider, and he falls in love with the girl. And then there's another story of a much older man who was in the army, and he fell in love, and it was like a taboo relationship, I think because uh, she was African-American, and it was like frowned upon at the time or something. So there was that love story, and then there's this contemporary love story. The older man is played by Alan Alda. And there's a funny scene where, he, in the trailer at least, I never saw the movie, but he looks down at a photograph of himself in the military, and it's a picture of the guy in the flashback, the actor that plays him as a young man. And it's like, we already know what Alan Alda looked like as a young man in the military. This is so stupid. Oh. <laughs> so I, I, I photoshopped a, uh, a picture of Alan Alda in MASH, a picture of Hawkeye holding a martini, in his uh, photograph. I'll have to post it on the Hitting Play Twitter yes. page. Well, that's a shame they didn't use that. Probably copyright issues or whatever. But... Well, many issues, considering that yes. there is already an actor that's supposed to play that character. But anyway, I just want to throw that out there. I'm on Twitter, at MC and Friends. You can find me there. And I'm also on Vine. My name is also MC and Friends there. There I do some humorous flip page animation cartoons. And uh, you can check all that stuff out. It's quite good. <laughs> I try, I try. Yeah. 
I also want to mention you can subscribe to us on iTunes and please leave us a five-star review if you like the show, or even if you didn't like it, you can still leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. We try to be very creative with those. We'll try to do skits and impressions and everything in between, so we'll, we'll use your name as long as it's something that we're pretty comfortable saying. If it's not, meh, you know, we'll see. I'll say <laughs> and, it. Yeah, Sean will say it. You can also tap to rate us five stars right on our iTunes page. You can do it that way, too, if you don't want to write us a review. It's just a very easy way. Of course, we won't leave you a shout-out, because we don't know what your name is if you just tap to rate. But anything you do is much appreciated. Well, we have been Lily, Sean, and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Good night, farewell, and amen. Yep, ditto.